Well, let me encourage you to have your Bible open as Ezekiel 37. And we're going to consider what it is that God wants to teach us and encourage us in as we consider together sticks and bones. Now, many people probably don't really have a clue about the book of Ezekiel. But even those who are in that position probably do know that there is a passage in there somewhere that has something to do with dry bones. Dem bones. Dem bones. Dem dry bones. This is the passage of scripture that inspired that song. The slaves in the southern states of the United States, well, before they were quite as united as they are today, felt like those dry bones. Well, this chapter provides two very simple and helpful pictures, actually, to help us understand some marvellous truths about God and what he said he will do and what he is now doing, even today, right now, to establish for himself his one people his one church in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we consider the two pictures, uh, the chapter is in two halves. The first section is the, the vision of the dry bones, and then the second is the, uh, the image of um, Ezekiel juggling these two sticks. We'll come to those shortly. I want to begin just by saying something about how we are to properly understand these prophecies now, these prophecies, is, it is my contention, are not about the Old Testament nation of Israel. They are about God's one true Israel. After all, the prophecies are that what God is going to establish here is an everlasting kingdom that will have no end with one king reigning over them eternally. One true Israel, one people of faith, as we read this morning. Now, I do need to acknowledge that not all evangelicals hold to the view that I'm about to propose to you this evening. Um, some evangelicals don't even come close to it. It's a contended area of... Christian theology but it is for me by far the best way and I believe the biblical way to understand these kinds of prophecies that we read about in the Old Testament having looked at what others have to say I keep coming back to this one thing is certain the things that are promised here by God to Israel most definitely had not been fulfilled by the time of the New Testament. There's talk here about Israel being re-established as a single nation under a king like David. That hadn't happened by the time we got to the New Testament, which is a period of just over 500 years. That hadn't happened. By the time the New Testament scriptures were being completed and by the time that Christ uh, came in his incarnation, these kinds of prophecies were still outstanding 
in New Testament days. And 2,000 years later, they still haven't been fulfilled. If you're thinking of them in terms of relating to a political and geographical nation-state of Israel, these things haven't happened. Uh, Some say that they will do one day, because that's what prophecies like these are referring to, that God will one day re-establish a nation-state of Israel and all of this will be fulfilled then in them. I hold a different view of how we're to read these prophecies. Now, lots of prophecy in the Old Testament was, of course, fulfilled by Christ himself. And where that happens, the scriptures in the New Testament make that abundantly clear. Hebrews, of course, in particular, talks very much about all of those things that are fulfilled by Christ, which were laid down in the Old Testament. But there's much in New Testament days that is still unfulfilled from the Old Testament. So how are we to understand it? How are we to read it? Well, my strong view is that the nation of Israel ceased to have any further plans in God's purposes beyond the New Testament, signified in part, for example, by the complete destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. And as we saw this morning, Paul himself, who, remember, is a Hebrew of Hebrews, there's no prouder Jew than Paul, He begins to to talk and write about God's ransomed Israel who are in Christ by faith alone. And the association with the nation of Israel is no longer necessary. Indeed, even in Old Testament days, association with the nation of Israel wasn't enough to make you a child of God. You had to have this same faith like Abraham had had and so we looked at some of those passages in Romans 9 you can read Romans 8 9 10 into 11 you can read Galatians chapters 3 and 4 talk about all of these things but Paul states in Romans they are not all Israel who are of Israel they're not all children just because they're descended from Abraham They're not the children of promise just because they've got the right blood in their veins going down a family tree. And he writes to the Galatians, only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. All the nations are going to be blessed through Abraham, but it's because of faith in Christ that that blessing is going to come. And then it really hits us when, for example, In verse 28 of Galatians 3, Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. That distinction just isn't necessary anymore. That distinction of Jew and Gentile just isn't needed anymore. Because it doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from or what blood you've got in your veins. Do you have faith in Christ? Are you trusting only in Christ? That's the only thing that matters. 
That's what makes the difference. If you are Christ's, then you are the fulfilment of that which was promised to Abraham. And then we also have passages such as Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 11. And Paul says this to the Ephesians, speaking of Christ, here's our peace. He's made both one. He's broken down the middle wall of separation. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, making peace. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off, those who are Gentiles, and those who are near, the Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and foreigners, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You've been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. No mention of the nation of Israel there. The only temple that's mentioned is you, who are the living temple of God, in whom Christ dwells. It's completely changed. It's a new covenant that God has established with his people. In Romans 11, Paul talks about those who are Jews but who are not of Israel being like branches who've been cut off the olive tree. So here's an olive tree and there are branches on it. Some of the branches are those who are of faith. and They remain. Others are branches where there is no faith. And they all get cut off the tree and they're no more. But there are others who are also now of faith. What will happen to them? They are grafted into the tree. So that God has just one tree with all the branches attached to it. And the old distinction of the nation of Israel is no more. God's one true Israel, the church, consists of both Jew and Gentile without distinction now and all saved by the means of faith in Christ. They are one people, they are one church, they are one family. Stop thinking that Old Testament way the apostles are saying. It's gone. And all these unfulfilled prophecies apparently unfulfilled prophecies, written in language understood by the people of their day, are to be interpreted and understood spiritually. And actually all of those prophecies have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled in the church right now. 
So as I mentioned last week, we didn't actually read it, but we've got passages like Joel chapter 2 from verse 28, where we read these words. It shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit on those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Wow. Blood, fire, pillars of smoke, the sun turning dark and the moon turning into blood. How is that to be understood? How do you begin to interpret a passage like that? Where do you begin to look to say that is the fulfilment of this. What are those verses talking about? What are they looking forward to? Not what you might think. At Pentecost, as God's Spirit was poured out upon the fledgling church, and as the gospel was preached, and as many came to faith, remember 3,000 on the first day, Peter stood and declared that everything that the people were seeing on the day of Pentecost was the fulfilment of that prophecy. It's a spiritual work that these words are prophesying and promising. A spiritual work that God accomplished on the day of Pentecost and has been accomplishing every day since. As men and women come to faith it's all about a spiritual work that God will do and it involves no longer an earthly Israel but the church it's about the church Jesus tells a parable about wicked vine dressers three of the four gospels record it you can find Matthew's recording of it in chapter 21 and we won't read the whole parable but Jesus tells this Story from verse 33 of Matthew 21. There's a landowner who has a vineyard and he goes off into a far country and he's appointed servants over his vineyard. But these servants don't do what they're supposed to do. And eventually they take the the son of the vineyard owner, who the vineyard owner has sent. And they kill the son. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their seasons. And then Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, he's talking to the Jews, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. The vineyard's being placed in the hands of Old Testament Israel. 
but now God has taken it off them and he's entrusting it somewhere else where's he entrusting it now he's entrusting it to the church Well, there are other scriptures that you could consider. Make a note of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. You can have a read of that. And in Hebrews chapter 8, some of the very prophecies that are mentioned here in Ezekiel and also in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, the writer to the Hebrews says that all of these things are being fulfilled right now in the gospel age he talks about from verse 8 of Hebrews 8 you'll see there Old Testament scriptures uh, being mentioned and then in verse 13 he talks about this new covenant Ezekiel talks about a new covenant and then of course in chapters 9 and 10 and 11 we have this wonderful expounding of the supremacy of the work of Christ and the doing away of all the old sacrificial system because Christ has been the fulfilment of it. These wonderful prophecies and promises that we're about to look at in Ezekiel, they all have their fulfilment in the gospel age. They all have their fulfilment in the preaching of the gospel and in the Christian church. And in the Old Testament, words like Jerusalem and Zion symbolize the church in the New Testament and point forward to the church in the New Testament. And they're pointing forward to that salvation and the everlasting kingdom which lost men and women are called into by faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter said, these apostles of old were inquiring into all of these things. They didn't really understand what they were writing but they were talking about us, he says, in the gospel age. They were ministering to us. These prophecies are for us, now in the church. And so we've got these two visions in Ezekiel 37. They're actually quite easy to understand. And they're talking about the situation for you and me right now. So the first is the vision of the bones in verses 1 to 14. Verse 1 indicates that it's a vision Ezekiel is in the spirit of the Lord. That's exactly how John describes himself at the beginning of Revelation. It's a vision. They're not literal things that are happening. It's a vision that God gives him to help him understand. And here is a picture of Old Testament Israel in all of their sin and defilement, in all of their idolatry and rebellion against God. A valley strewn with bones, very many bones, dry bones, no, very dry bones, sun-bleached bones that are as dead as a bone can be. You cut it in half and all the marrow is gone. It's just dead, there's no life there, no hope of resuscitation. It's a picture of Old Testament Israel for sure. But it's a picture of every man and woman spiritually before God. Just like dry bones. Nothing there. There we all are on the valley. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Lifeless bones. 
question. And what a question. Can these bones live? Now there's a question worth considering. Can these bones ever live? Can anything bring these bones back to life? Ezekiel's initial answer is very wise. Only you know the answer to that one, Lord. And of course, God does know the answer. And I find it really interesting. Of course, in Genesis, we read that Adam was formed from just the dust of the ground and then that Eve was formed from a bone, a rib from his side. And from that, God was able to bring life. So we've already got a big clue and hint in the scripture that God can definitely do something with dry bones. Uh, Things like this in the Bible, I don't know what they do for you, but they make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Mind you, I don't have them anywhere else, but (laughs) the Bible's wonderful, isn't it? The Bible's a wonderful book. Is it beyond God to bring life in this desolate place? Maybe you're in a desolate place right now. Maybe your life feels desolate. No life. No hope. Who can rescue me from this? Who can bring me out of this? Who can bring any good from this? Can God? Maybe you don't feel desolate. But spiritual truth isn't primarily about how you feel. It's about the reality of your soul. It's about your position before the living God. And even if you don't feel desolate, this is the reality of your condition before God in your sin. And this incidentally is also why people in this world can never find any real, true, lasting or permanent peace or satisfaction for their soul. Because this is the problem that actually they're trying to resolve. Why is it that men like Freddie Starr die bloated, friendless, alone in this world. A life just decimated. What a talent that young man was. It's all gone. All been wasted. All been ruined. Why? Because his life, like everybody else's, is a valley of dry bones. They're looking for something that will restore and bring life. And no matter where they look, they can't find it. And God gives a wonderful promise to Ezekiel. I am going to do it. I can and I will. I'm going to restore them to life. And I want you to notice that it comes in two particular stages. Look at verse 6. I'll put sinews on you, bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied. What did Ezekiel do? He spoke 
God's word. And at the speaking of God's word, the bones begin to move and they're reformed into a body again. But they're still dead. They're still dead. They're not with life yet. What happens next? Prophesy to the breath. And the breath came and breathed on them and breathed life into them. Ezekiel didn't breathe. The breath was not his, nor did it come from him. In the New Testament, the work of the Holy Spirit is equated with breath. John chapter 3, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is like the wind blowing. You can't see it, but you know the effects of it. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came with the sound of a mighty wind. And in New Testament Greek, the word most frequently used for the Holy Spirit is pneuma, from which we get the word pneumatic. And it literally means wind or breath. What will restore these bones? Two things. The word of God and the work of the Spirit. That's the, that's the gospel work today, isn't it? Preaching the word of God and praying the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how people get saved. That's how people come to faith in Christ. That's how new life comes to people. Preaching the word and praying the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important that we are given to the word of God. And that's why it's so important that we give ourselves as a church to prayer. Because these are the two things that God has always used. These are the two things that God will continue to use in bringing people to new life in Christ Jesus. Proclaiming the word and praying the work of his spirit who breathes new life into dead souls. Then in verse 12, the picture changes from a valley floor to a grave. The dead are made alive. Resurrection takes place. Sounds like New Testament language to me. Well, it's gospel language. And the gospel's the same in the Old Testament and the New. You might be surprised to hear that. Resurrection takes place. Spiritual resurrection at first. Complete resurrection, promised and assured, as we remembered this morning. This is all New Testament language. These are New Testament themes. And here they are in a dusty old book like Ezekiel. Because God only has one people and he only has one gospel. Remember in Galatians 3 where Paul says God preached the gospel to Abraham. There's only one gospel. There's only one saviour. He only has one people. He only works one way. It's all here in the book. All sinners are in the same condition. All need the same restoring. All need the same renewing to life. And only God can do it. And he does do it. And it's all prophesied and promised here in this book. And he has and he is and he will restore his chosen ones. Put his spirit within them. Bring them to life and place them in his kingdom. It's what he's done for you if you're a Christian. All of you who are the Lord's people 
were once sun-bleached dead bones on the valley floor. Long dead bones lying in a grave. And now, in Christ, you live. And then there's two sticks in closing. Two sticks. Two sticks with names written. On one stick, Judah. The southern kingdom. Those to whom Ezekiel belongs, back in Jerusalem. The second stick has the name Joseph and Ephraim. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you might have thought, well, if one stick's got Judah on it, the other stick's going to have Israel. But no. Why Joseph and Ephraim? Well, Israel became a divided kingdom between north and south. The northern part continued to be called Israel, and they were based in Samaria. The southern part became known as Judah, based in Jerusalem. And for centuries, that continued. And in the books of the kings, you read about all the kings in Israel and Judah, north and south. But in 722 BC, way over 100 years ago now in Ezekiel's day, the northern kingdom of Israel has been completely overrun by the Assyrians. It happened in 722 BC. The northern kingdom of Israel is no more. And since that time, the prophets have stopped using the name Judah for the southern kingdom and resorted back to calling them Israel. All through Ezekiel, they're referred to as Israel, not Judah. Because we don't need that distinction between Israel and Judah anymore because Israel have gone. And so they're all just called Israel once more. And so because old, that Israel is gone, these other two names are referred to in their place, Joseph and Ephraim. Two very highly esteemed uh, forerunners from Old Testament history. And... Ezekiel is signifying the unifying of the nation. So you've got these two sticks. You've got Judah and you've got Joseph and Ephraim on these two sticks. Now imagine, imagine the ends of these two sticks being brought together. And in one hand you grab the, the two ends of the sticks. So your hand is covering the join of the two ends. And so as you hold them up like that, they could look like a single stick in your hand. And that's the image. And that's the message. The old divisions are gone. God is going to have a unified, single people in unity and harmony together. God is going to make a single nation once more that will be his people. And there'll be deliverance for them if you read through the second half of that chapter. There'll be deliverance. There'll be cleansing from sin and defilement. There'll be one, in verse 24, who will be both king and shepherd over them. I mentioned last week the significance of David's name, so I won't go into that again. And they'll walk in God's name. Verse 26, I'm going to make a covenant of peace with them. God is going to establish this new covenant of peace with his people, and it's going to last forever. God will presence himself amongst them. He will tabernacle with them. It's not a reference to a building. It's as John says of Christ in John chapter 1, that Jesus came and dwelt amongst us. The word is tabernacled amongst us as his people. 
It's what precisely what Paul teaches in Romans and Galatians. You'll find it there in Revelation 21, that being in the presence of God who is tabernacling with us, just like in Ezekiel 37. God in the midst of his people, his one people, their God and their shepherd and their king, all united under him. It's the gospel age. You're in it, and if you're a Christian, you're part of it. The very fulfillment of these verses is seen in our midst this evening as we look around one another. Dry bone after dry bone having been brought to newness of life and brought under the king in his everlasting kingdom. Dry bones made alive through the word of God and the spirit of God, the only way that any are ever saved. Made to be part of one of God's one Israel, God's one family, God's one church by faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's a, a very strong link between this morning's message and tonight's. One faith and one people. All adopted as sons. All able to call God Father. If you will turn in your sins in repentance and faith to Christ, to the one who is able to bring life everlasting to dry, dead bones.